Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yes. how you doing? As you know, I'm a little under the weather. Yes. But we're we're going we're gonna to power through. We're going to have a fun time. Are we? Yeah. I guess that's kind, of up, to, I guess that's kind of up to our guest. We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I no like when said we, there would be pressure. <laughs> <laughs> when we first meet people, we really like to lay uh, lay it on thick. Just be um, funny, though. No pressure. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, we we, ha- we have to have fun because uh, we're dwindling down the last uh, few weeks in our recording studio here. Yeah, that's an odd turn of events. Uh, yeah, we're about to uh, relocate, uh, my wife and I, to... Well, within walking distance, honestly, it's, it's literally <laughs> yeah. half a block down the street, but it's a real house. We've been living in a, uh, a, a townhome, which means that, you know, I've been pretty cavalier about uh, saying the area in which I live, uh-huh. um, because, because you're I'm a, behind a gated uh, yeah. thing now I won't be. And so I'm going to have to be a lot more careful. Yeah. Yeah. So, we'll go back and scrub any references yeah. to certain restaurants or yeah. whatever that might be <laughs> near uh, here. Let's see. What uh, is it? Uh, well, don't say it now. Dr. Hodway Wagley's Tyler, Texas barbecue. Okay. We're not super close to that one. So it's okay. Yeah. It's just fun to say. It is. It is. All right. Um, well, let's pay some bills. Indeed. Let's do that, David. I agree. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi. This excites me, David. Currently available on Mubi is Robin Hardy's 1973 film, The Wicker Man, mm. starring Christopher Lee and the delightfully named Edward Woodward. Uh, go with Eddie or something. Or just Ed. <laughs> Come on. Come on, guy. Right. Um, I mean, doesn't that sound like someone, like, making up a name on the spot? Yeah. Oh, it sounds like something uh, Homer Simpson would say. My name <laughs> right. is Edward Woodward. And he's just, he's looking at a pile of wood right. and just got it from there. Um so here's uh, something about this film that I wanted to uh, to mention that's not necessarily about the film. Um, so David, as you know, I'm at uh, I'm finishing up my spring quarter at UCLA. No better time to initiate a huge move than in the last two weeks of a quarter. Yeah. But um, so I'm taking a, a class. It's an independent study, and it is film festival programming. And so, uh, unsurprisingly, but very excitedly, uh, our assignment, our final assignment, is to program a non non-existent film festival. And so, um, it's fun. It's like it's like Sim City. It is. Yes, exactly. And then I will have, you know, some big monsters coming through my, uh, my you know, I, film I, festival. I, I, I'm so not a gamer that I don't actually know any, I never actually played SimCity. I just know it as a reference. When I was a kid, I played a lot of it and I believe monster attacks happen, but you didn't control them. They just happen sometimes along with tornadoes and stuff. That's interesting. Um, so, uh, what mine was going to be, unsurprisingly, was going. It was going to be a Christian type film festival, but it would be sort of a retrospect, uh, not not retrospective, like a, a repertory type of thing, where it's movies that have been out in some cases for a very long time. And the idea is these would be movies that uh, I think Christian, my fellow Christians, should see, not the ones they do see. Yeah. And, uh, but I also thought it'd be really fun to have like a couple of midnight movies. And so the first night would be the exorcist. Second night would be the wicker man. Okay. And there'd be like Q and not Q and a, sorry, because as you know, I hate Q and a, there would be panels, uh, after by people that I would choose, uh, discussing these things. And so, um, 
So I thought, uh, so the wicker man is a film that I think and to be making very clear at the beginning of the panel, we will not be opening things up to questioning at the yeah. end. Of the, and this fact, is going to go the full hour. Yeah. <laughs> I will be doing, I'll be asking the questions around here. Thank you very much. It's my, uh, non-existent, uh, film festival. Um, but I do think that, uh, wicker man is a really the original. I've not seen the new one. I will assume that it's not quite as, though I do like Neil Abu. The new one is uh, at this point like 12 years old. You say the new one. <laughs> it's newer than 1973. Okay. I can tell you that. I'm not great at math, but I know that. Um, and it's a, it's a film that I, that I was super excited that I saw as uh, a person of faith. Cause it's a film that, uh, that sort of challenges the more any mainstream faith. It's like, okay, well what's the difference between like a cult and a religion? And I don't know, it forces you to think more critically about uh, the things you believe. And so I'm a big fan of the wicker man and uh, it really uh, shook me for like a whole weekend after I saw it. <laughs> but anyway, so I just wanted to, uh, to mention that it is a marvelous film. Uh, and there is a special offer for listeners, battleship pretension, uh, you can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com earbuds. They're professional quality earbuds. They're, vari- they're, they're available in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors over at TweakedAudio.com. And uh, all that is is there for a, for a low, low price. They're great, uh, great earbuds. Tyler and I use them uh, each and every day of our lives. Uh, like I said, low, low price. I'm forgetting my spiel. It's all in my head because this is cold. Um, But, okay, for the third time, low, low price. But if you want an even lower, lower price, you use the offer code pretension at checkout and you get one third off that price and no shipping charges. So for great earbuds, go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension at checkout. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. All right. I'm going to introduce our guest, who's been very polite mm-hmm. um, and uh, is, if he's anything like me, um, probably uh, is worried that uh, Tyler's about to try to indoctrinate him into some sort of... No, I wasn't worried at all. <laughs> I was more worried about walkouts at your Christian film festival, but... Well, that's... <laughs> but it's that's, midnight, so it's okay. Yeah, that's why contextualizing is really important in this film festival. So... Yeah, I, I, I sometimes forget, like, you know, your being a Christian is not... In terms of America, that odd, but I feel like we're in a certain milieu here where it's like people aren't expecting it. And I always feel like, is that something we should prepare the guests for that Tyler's a Christian? Is that something that's going to blindside them? Or maybe it's my own, (laughs) my own thing that I felt like. No, I've had that before where uh, (laughs) somebody, I think uh, sometime, uh, this was years ago, I believe it might've been the first time we were talking to Pat Healy, but we were with a bunch of other people. Uh And I think I had mentioned that I was a, I was a Christian and somebody, maybe you probably said the good kind. Probably. That like, sounds hey, like something I would have said 10 years ago. Also, I yeah. can't stand by that. Look at this tattoo. I have a tattoo. <laughs> um, anyway. um, 
Okay, we'll get but into hopefully tattoos. Our, hopefully our guest is not too freaked out by, by such things. Uh, I'm freaked out about, about many things, but not... <laughs> I will splash some holy water on you halfway through. It can only be a, a good thing. Uh, <laughs> I live in Silver Lake, you know, I need all oh, the help absolutely. I can get. There you go. Um, we're very excited to, to welcome our guest. He's been uh, a, a critic for the LA Weekly and the Village Voice for 20 years. Just 20 years? But I'm, oh, all, but I'm only 32. <laughs> Still. Uh, everybody, Chuck Wilson. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, now, uh, I want I want to get to know you. Uh, and we're going to, I have a whole, you know, we, we have questions we ask, but mostly mm-hmm. we'll just talk about what your favorite films are, but we'll talk about your history with the LA weekly. But first off, what's in the news this week, Tyler? Now you were out of town. I was out of town and I was, was not paying attention. Is there something in the news this week? Well, there's lots of there's stuff lots in the news stuff. Yeah. this week, <laughs> but in, uh, in terms of movies, uh, I have had a lot of fun reading people's responses to the Alamo drafts, ha- draft houses, women only screenings of wonder, wonder woman. Yeah. Uh, and the, I mean the Alamo draft house, like their, their social media people have handled this so well. There's been a lot of very funny, uh, responses. I think they've handled it so well. It almost seems like it worked out too perfect for them because I feel like <laughs> the best publicity this thing could have gotten because Absolutely. by and large, most women I know aren't that interested. Even if it's a female superhero, they're not interested in superhero movies. You need to tell people what happened. You have oh, yes, yes, indeed. Happened. Sorry. Oh, people, I, I, I assume people know, knew, but you're right. Yeah. The Alamo Draft House uh, uh, announced they were doing, a, the, at first, a uh, woman-only screening of Wonder Woman, uh, by which meant, you know, women, it was a ladies' night, women could come, <laughs> but also the entire staff and kitchen yeah. crew and everyone in the building, uh, it would be all women or people who identify as women. Um, this, of course, went over smoothly and was a, like uh, immediately granted approval and applause from every corner of the internet, right? Yeah. No, of course not. Uh, people got up in arms and uh, the social media threads ended up being very funny to read because someone like would say some, uh, I think someone was like, uh, well, are you going to do a male-only only screening of Thor three and their response was a link to how you can reserve the theater for a private screening. Um, that was very funny. So uh, they embrace the free market is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. There you <laughs> go. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I've, I've found this, uh, I, I've, I've found this to, to be fun. Uh, I don't know what anybody else thinks, but I'm, uh, as is the case with everything these days, I found it to be exhausting. Um, not merely the things in my life, but anything I read in the news, movie-related or otherwise. Um, like, it, when it was a relief when uh, Powers Booth died, because at least we all knew how to take it, which was, <laughs> we're all sad. Right. Everyone in the world is sad. Nobody is upset. Uh, nobody's, nobody's thrilled that he's gone. There was only one reaction to that, just as one would expect there would be one reaction, or possibly no reaction to this. Uh-huh. But no, somebody... It's great PR for the movie. Oh, no question. <laughs> it sure is. Which no opens, question. I think, soon. Very yeah. soon, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been, um, uh, it's been, well, this was, uh, it's interesting this happened because there was already in the air, there was this, because uh, early, you know, critics got to, got to see it early. We haven't seen it. Have you seen it? I haven't seen yeah. it. Okay. Um, it's been getting generally positive buzz. Yeah. yeah. And so, there's I, I don't know how how much Chuck you've been following all, all of this in this sort of like you know superhero movie fanboy community but there's been this conspiracy theory for a couple of years now <clears throat> that Marvel is Disney or Marvel is like 
pale giving paola to certain critics oh, to yeah. favor marvel movies over we the accept DC. paola yes, yes. <laughs> over, over the week. for paola where is my paola <laughs> really hit the spot um and so you'd think these people would be like you know when finally uh, a dc movie comes out and the critics seem to be liking it they'd be like okay if you know things are turning around no it's the opposite now they're saying well this is even further proof that this is all just a left-wing conspiracy because of course they're giving the good reviews to the first you know one the first one of these that's directed by a woman and that's the, the, the initial response there could also be another i mean you know got God bless him for uh, for what is going on in his life sure, right now. Sure, but yeah. it is also the first one not directed by Zack Snyder. I guess yeah. I guess well, Suicide Ayer, Squad. Yeah, that's true. Or, that directed, also, or directed by the studio. Pardon me. <laughs> yeah, that was directed by a company that makes trailers. Right. right? Yeah. Um, it's the first one directed by a director. Pardon me. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I'm just glad it's coming out. It seems like it's been coming out forever. I have a 11 year old goddaughter who's very, very excited about oh, it. Oh, cool. And I think that's going to turn out to be like this. It, kids are little girls are going to go. Yeah. But it seems like she's been talking about it for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> Almost to the point that she's losing interest. <laughs> but it's I, true. I think Tyler, you were onto something that this is like turn that this is, and you're onto something that this is good PR for the movie turning it into not only is this a good movie, but now it sort of like means something in a way yeah. because even like, um, you know, my, my wife, Natalie is, she loves movies, has great taste in movies, but there's a certain kind of movie she doesn't have any time for time for. And that's a big special effects blockbuster. Right. She has no time whatsoever. But when something breaks through like this, she was like, she was like, I want to see Fury road because you know, men's rights activists were pissed off about it. And now she's sort I'm of like to get you to see it though. Uh, no, I still haven't seen Fury Road. <laughs> she did eventually see it and she was like, eh, uh, still not her type of movie. But, uh, and she and I were talking yesterday. Like, I think we're going to go see Wonder Woman. It's going to um, be at the Vista. Is it going to be at the yes. Vista? Then we'll definitely go All see it. All things are good at the Vista. That's, oh, you, the fabulous Vista Theater in Silver Lake. You Near have no idea house. how Wonderful. many movies my wife has not been interested in that I've been able to say, but it's at the Vista, at the Vista. and she'll say, oh, okay, we can it's go. It's true. I always say even bad movies are better at the Vista. Yeah. Have I gone to the Vista? Yeah, we saw... Is that um, what we saw? Uh, I was a teenage I was a teenage wear skunk. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think that's the only film I've seen there. Uh, oh, man, it's, it's the it's best. beautiful theater. I yeah. did like it a lot. And yeah, the manager great. always, if it's... You if it's like a superhero movie, yeah. the manager, Victor Martinez, he'll always dress up and greet people at the door. His beast for Beauty and the Beast was amazing. Hmm. And he hired a bell. Oh, wow. I didn't <laughs> see it. Anyway, it's, and you know, the beauty of the Vista, not to plug them. They don't need me to plug them, but it's only 9.50 at night. Oh, right. You nice. know, it's like, that's how it should be. <laughs> you know what I, uh, what would I think? I still love the Vista, but um, now we're, we're getting hyper specific in terms of neighborhood <laughs> here. But, um, the Mexican restaurant across the street, El Chavo, mm-hmm. ever since it changed hands, not the same. it's not the same. It's like a little <laughs> bit more like bougie now. It's like it ta- it, the menu is like smaller and more expensive and it's not, it, it, used, it had the feel of this sort of like family Mexican restaurant and you could go like, I'd go get a margarita before I go to a movie and then I'd go to the movie and then you my wife and I'd go more. get a margarita <laughs> after and like talk about the movie. I saw all three Hunger Games movies, all four Hunger Games movies opening night at the Vista with my wife and it was like El Chavo was part of the tradition and yeah. now it's like it's still there but now it's like kind of a I don't know. It's kind of a fancy hipstery place. It's not the same. I know. That's Silver Lake too. That's yeah. happening all over. Yeah. yeah. They're invading. <laughs> David, as you know, I do love your use of the word fancy just because I feel like 
it just it, it betrays your your midwestern roots it's like ah it's getting all fancy it just <laughs> yeah. has a, i don't know i feel like I, and my bar for fancy is probably pretty low <laughs> that's probably true yeah they got oh the, look at this silverware it's actually silver it's not plastic or nothing <laughs> yeah. um yeah uh, i do i think i i developed this theory that i might have said on the show that anybody who uses the term fancy likely is not fancy um <laughs> because i don't think anybody it's just like at a nice elegant restaurant would say like oh yes it's very fancy i don't think anyone, anyone there would say it but um, anyway. this is completely off topic and i well, think oh, is it <laughs> yeah what is the topic we've been on topic i think so <laughs> much but speaking of the term fancy so there's an there's the fancy as an adjective that we you know all know and use mm-hmm. and then there's the sort of old timey like verb form of fancy which means like to imagine to fancy something oh, yes, you know yes. what i mean sure and I think there's, I've, I've overheard, this is a couple times in my life I've overheard someone, because there's a saying in the lexicon, fancy meeting you here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what that means is, imagine, I, I couldn't have imagined meeting you here, but I've heard more than once in my life, someone younger, a younger person, use that in public, and clearly from like the, the tone and from the emphasis, clearly not understand what they're saying, <laughs> and saying like, fancy meeting you here. <laughs> Which is not at not all. The same. <laughs> it's all about inflection. Um, which reminds me of another story, which is even further off topic. Damn it, David. But do you, Tyler, do you remember the ad that ran uh, uh, late night TV in Chicago? That was, it was for like a women's health uh, center in Chicago. Oh, okay. um, and I'm going to, so first I'm going to say how the copy was meant to be read. Okay. It was meant to say, uh, pregnant think you're pregnant, <laughs> right? right? Pregnant, think you're pregnant. But the woman who, who did the voiceover for this ad said it like this, pregnant, think you're pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so aggressive. It's just pregnant. You think you're pregnant. <laughs> it's how a mother would react. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Enough of that, David. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to rock it through. Uh, I want to talk about some stuff that's on the podcast and then we'll, we will actually get on the podcast. Sorry. I'm sick. As I mentioned, uh, uh on the website and then we'll actually get to know, uh, get to know, get to know Chuck. Um, the double feature guys looked at in, in the, in a Valley of violence and the devil's backbone. You've got a link to our friend Josh's new, is it a short film? Uh, the jogger. Uh, yes. The jogger. It's, the jogger? I mean, it's, it's more of a sketch really. It's okay. Like three minutes long. Um, our latest, uh, installment of ask BP, our video mailbag segment, uh, is, is up there. If you have questions, you can email them to me at David at battleship com. And I'm going to have to put in a new caveat. Uh, one question at a time, please, because someone sent us an email that had like 10 questions and they're all good questions. Like it's going to take us a year to get through all these. That's uh, fine. They're always we, there. I like that. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, let's see. Uh, our new friends movie meltdown, uh, uh, did, did a podcast on, on King Arthur. So those are the guys who saw it apparently. Um, I, I saw it. Oh yeah, <laughs> sure. We'll talk more about it in a moment because okay. I have questions. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, West looked at the music from Dirty Dancing, uh, the original Dirty Dancing, not the new made for TV uh, oh, yeah. uh, version. I and saw that too. I'm assuming not uh, Dirty Dancing Havana Nights, which um, is a movie that I saw <laughs> that came out. 20 years after Dirty Dancing, right? Mm-hmm. They were trying to get it but right. Take, but it takes place before Dirty Dancing, but Patrick Swayze is still in it as the same character. Yeah. Uh, worth worth mentioning. Uh, as far as movie reviews, um, I reviewed uh, Berlin Syndrome, w- which I liked, I think, more than 
it seems the average uh, critic liked. Did you see Berlin Syndrome? No. Okay. I want to. Um, sequel cast is looking at the Hellraiser movies, and uh, our our spring playlists are up as maybe, of the time you're hearing this. Yeah, maybe, just maybe, anyone will care about them. Although you've been getting some 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 play on on this one, finally. Uh, yeah, yeah, just from at the drive-in fans. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but, oh, and also, uh, Sarah, who's work, still working her way, doing her 2017 project of working her way through our entire voter listener voted top 100 movies of all time list. She's at number 59, which is our namesake battleship Potemkin. That's right. So you can read her, uh, her thoughts on battleship Potemkin over there. Okay. Let's get into it. Shall we? Indeed. Tyler, what did you want to, uh, you wanted to talk about King Arthur. You wanted to ask <laughs> Chuck about King Arthur. I did, but you know what? I was so, it's, it's so rare. We have a new guest. And we're jumping right into it. You're not asking him where he's from. I am jarred. Oh, I was going to wait for you to talk okay. about King Arthur. Then we're well, going to, yeah, that's exactly where I'm going to go. King Arthur looked very good to me, but I did not get a chance to see it. I wanted to, uh, I had an opportunity to see a movie last night, but it was late enough that unsurprisingly they are minimizing the number of showings of King Arthur because nobody cares. Uh, so I wound up seeing Alien Covenant instead, and I would have been much more interested to see King Arthur, honestly. Yeah. But you saw it. Uh, what did you think? I think that even if it had been great, it probably wouldn't have done well. Right. Because who is, what's the audience for that? Yeah. The audience for that is the people who don't go to the movies. I saw it on a Friday afternoon at four o'clock, you know, at the neighborhood theater. <laughs> I paid six dollars. <laughs> and I wasn't miserable. I, you know, I was like, there were parts of it that I was like, if I was 12, I yeah. would love this. I would see it three times. There are elements of it that are terrific. There's a, some, a great thing about how the sword, what the stone is, and how it got in this, you know, how it got in the stone, and all that. There's some terrific ideas in it. It's just, and the one of the amazing things I thought about it was that there are a couple supporting players who steal the movie. Yeah. They have better material than Charlie Hunan has, uh, and they kind of. They really do steal the movie. You're more interested in them than you are the main players. That's kind of a pro- good, but a problem. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm interested in, honestly, just for the last several years, um, Jude Law as a supporting actor, which admittedly, as a supporting actor in like Gattaca and Talented Mr. Ripley, that's how we got to know him first. But then, you know, he's a good looking guy. And so he got like some lead roles. But the idea of him being this evil, sadistic king sounded really good to me. Well, you know, he's a terrific actor. Uh, two things. As far as the one of the problems with the movie is you get to the climax, and it's supposed to be a duel between, you know, a sword fired to the death between the two of them, and they have Jude Law in this, you know, heavy black, you know, demon from hell costume. You can't see his face, mm. and it just becomes a whirl of whirling effects. Yeah. And so you completely lose... Really, we just want to see them preferably fight with the sword. <laughs> There's right. no sense of the sword being anything at the end yeah. of the movie. So they kill it with special effects the way they always do. But I think the thing about... I just, I've seen Jude Law on cable a couple of times lately. So I, I rewatched uh, Sleuth, the remake of oh, Sleuth yeah. with Michael yeah. Caine, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> and uh, Kenneth Branagh directed that, which makes me nervous for his forthcoming Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. Where he... It's directing and also maybe, playing Poirot. Maybe if he has a lot more characters <laughs> than two, I think he'll do okay. Well, you know, uh, they hired Harold Pinter to do the adaptation of for Sleuth, and that and I believe not he, a great idea. I believe he had commented that he never read the original play, and 
Huh. So I heard what the beats were, but and then wrote it from that, but did not actually adapt the play itself. It's a strange thing. It's very cold. It's Harold Pinter. I can so see that. The whole thing, the sets, it's all very spare and cold. But the main thing that always drove me crazy about it is that there's there's no love in it. They're not telling it because they love the intricacies of of, of a puzzle and a mystery, yeah. which is the point of Sleuth is is the puzzles and the yeah. mystery and the mystery and the mystery and the mystery and the, and the sequel had no feeling for that at all. So it's just this empty thing. But a thing you that, know who should have remade it? Who? David Mamet. He would have loved every single moment of that, and <laughs> would have. And he should have adapted it too. It would have been like been called fucking Sleuth and stuff like that. <laughs> anyway, I interrupted. I apologize. No, no, no. You know, I think what's happening with Jude Law right now is that he's in that wonderful spot where he had his run at being a star, above the title star. It didn't really quite happen. He had some good things, but he never really made it as a leading man, bring him to the box office thing. And so now, and he's now a few years older, he doesn't have to play. He's still good looking, of course, but he doesn't, he, he gets to be a, he gets to be an actor and a character actor. And I think that must be a a wonderful relief, you know, to be past that part where you have to be the guy you have to be whoever the stars are now there aren't too many of them but i think true. it must be kind of a a blessing you know you can just work and you can play anything you can be something yeah. silly like king arthur and you can turn around and do something serious yeah i think that happens to a lot of actors who like are they're they're good looking and so they get cast as leading men and then it's not until they're older that you realize what they're actually good at like yeah. case in point Alec Baldwin being funny like right. yeah. no one knew Alec Baldwin was funny when he was younger he didn't know for years <laughs> <laughs> but no one would let him be funny because he was too handsome um, it's pretty funny in the shadow just putting uh, that out there <laughs> um, it's day will come <laughs> whereas I think there are uh, I was actually just thinking about this um, because there are some actors who I think are avoiding or managing to avoid that. Because we were talking with Kristen last week about actors that we that people tend to hate, and yes. there is a certain type of like blandly good-looking guy, like your Sam Worthingtons and your Taylor Kitches, whatever, who get put into bland parts, and people sort of get sick of them. And I think um, Army Hammer is an actor who I think has consciously avoided He's that. About to have and, a big year, and has and has has made a lot of good choices. Um, uh, you know, and, and some, some oddball choices like showing up in a very small role in Nocturnal Animals or doing this new Ben Wheatley movie, Free Fire, that came out a month or so ago, which is a terrific uh, performance. For he him. was in The Man from Uncle, another. I like, now, I like I The liked. Man from Uncle. That's the only Guy Ritchie movie I think I've liked. And I thought it was. I thought it was really good. I was I was sad actually that it didn't do well because I wouldn't have minded enough. <laughs> Is it so you've you've been a critic long enough that I'm sure at this point <laughs> I'm sorry to put it there, but honestly I feel like we have as well that you kind of get a sense of like a movie is going to be released. It's based on a property. Yeah. It has people in it. Mm-hmm. And it actually looks pretty good, but the moment it's announced, you're just like, oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> it's not going to do well. And Man from Uncle, I never thought it was going to do well. Because who knows? Because again, you know, this business of turning TV shows into movies, these TV shows are 30 years old. Man from yep. I'm 54. Okay, I'm remitting that in public. <laughs> the Man from Uncle was a nostalgia item when I was yeah. a teenager. It was already old. who's the the audience is is I'm sorry, that audience is either not with us anymore or they're not going to the movies. <laughs> and yeah. if they do, if they do want to see they're gonna Man from it. Uncle, they don't want to see that version of Man from Uncle. It it really is an odd 
it's an odd choice, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie. It's actually I have a, very, I have very a theory. good. Okay. I think that LA and Los Angeles and Hollywood has never really changed. It's full of, of quote, producers. It's full of guys who own one property. They own the rights <laughs> yeah. to make a movie of the man from Uncle, and they spend every day of their lives. It's like they're shopping their screenplay. They yeah. spend every day of their lives trying to get someone interested in a remake of the man from Uncle, and it can take twenty years. Yeah, look at Baywatch. You think that wasn't thought of a long time ago? It can take years and years and years, and then by the of course, by the time it finally gets made, it's it's really too late. But it, but that guy is yeah. thrilled, <laughs> you know. So I think there's a lot of that well, going on. What I feel bad for is the people who have written original screenplays. I guess I don't feel too bad because they end up getting bought. But their original screenplays that end, then end up, or, or, or their adaptations of something else, and it's like, oh, this will work as this. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there are five Die Hard movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Only the fifth yeah. Die Hard movie was written to be a Die Hard movie with a character named John McClane. The first one was an adaptation of a novel. The second one was an adaptation of a novel. I think the third one was an original um, called Simon Says. The fourth was right. another, I think, original. That, like, that people just... And I think, you know, we were talking off mic before we recorded about the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, Pirates 4 was an adaptation of a Tim Powers novel called On Stranger Tides, uh, oh, which is wow. like a, I forgot a fantastical, historic, like historical fantasy fiction. Tim Powers. Uh, <laughs> uh, nothing to do with Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I they didn't know that turned that all. into a Pirates movie. That's like uh, Shot in the Dark, <clears throat> where it was based on a play, a farcical mystery that had nothing to do with uh, Inspector Clouseau. Right. And they didn't really change the play i think i've never read the play if i had to guess i would say there is a bumbling cop character that they're like i know what we can do with this but the rest of it is pretty much the same and it's worth noting that a shot in the dark is by far the best of those pink panther movies yeah. uh, in my opinion but um all right how'd we get so far off topic we were talking about king arthur uh yeah I, but, I, but you thought it was no i thought, for a certain I age group i thought it was you know like i said it was fine for a friday the theater was full of of guys by themselves like me <laughs> you know and i don't think anyone was miserable you know your mind kind of wanders it was you know I, I had sort of a revelation about my life in the middle of it <laughs> i swear and so and you, know, you that happens with these big effects movies you you, you know even alien you kind of wander and then you come back yeah. to it it's not the worst movie ever made i think there's two problems. One of the problems, or maybe it's the same problem. I think that good movies are overpraised these days, and a lot of these big bad movies are like made to be the worst thing that ever made, huh. and they're not always. It's just a. It's Friday night. Hollywood hasn't changed. Friday yeah. night, something has to open. It's right. still a factory yeah. town. It's not as uh, in a smooth factory as it was once was. But on Friday night, there needs to be a new movie in those theaters. And some weeks, most weeks, it's not going to be wouldn't a great be, product. Wouldn't it be strange if there was just two weeks a year where the studio's like, we're good. <laughs> Literally, nobody releases anything. Well, it they kind of do opera. now with all these uh, indie things. That's or, true, you know, yeah, yeah. So-called indies. Yeah. Oscar season is, yeah. Give me the opportunity uh, to catch up. Yeah, it would be great. Yeah. Um, now I, I have questions I want to ask, but I, I can't go past this. Uh, this note that I want to hear more about how good movies are overpraised. I find that very interesting. I want to. Oh I want dear. To hear what you, well, what do you think this is going to get me in trouble? Uh, <laughs> uh, I just feel like I've felt this way for the last few years that there aren't too many masterpieces. Okay, I'm sorry, there's not, uh-huh. and there's also not much that's new. Um, but 
Listen, a perfect example is Alien Covenant. Sure. There are rapturous reviews for that movie. Really, like, crazy rapturous. And then... I didn't see, I didn't go to the screenings. Mm-hmm. I don't go to a lot of screenings now because if I go out at night, I can't find a place to park when I come home. <laughs> so I wait for them to, and if I don't have to go, I, I'll just wait for it to come at the Vista. I read, I'd rather see a real, a real audience. And when I saw Alien, that, I saw it that Friday, the day it opened, of course. And you could feel it working and then not working and then working again and then not working. It really drops off. It's such an odd, it has the yeah. oddest rhythms. It's like three different movies all in one. But the audience experience of that movie was different than what those critics were writing about. Those critics were projecting, and I'm not going to name names, but and I do it too, uh-huh. you know, it just happens, but you, you project a lot of meaning and them- thematics and importance on movies and I think right now that's happening a lot. And I think it's bad for the audience because, you know, Moonlight's a wonderful movie, but it almost can't bear the hyperbole hmm. that came with it. So if my brother in Atlanta goes to see Moonlight, uh, he goes into it expecting to just be blown out of his seat because these reviews are so like it's. It's the second coming. And so, it, but it's such a modest little movie. And the reviews have not told him how to watch that movie. That's interesting. I, I wonder if... And I feel like that's a burden on the movie. Just listen to you say that, the, where, I'm, I could where my wrong. mind goes, is, 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 <laughs> is I wonder if that's a response on the part of the critic to the way that their audience, not the audience for the movie, but the audience for the critic has changed as the internet has made things more niche. Is there an assumption like I'm going to write about moonlight or, you know, from this point of view, I'm going to write about alien covenant from this point of view, because I'm assuming that my reader is coming from the same place I'm coming from. Do you know what I mean? I don't know because you're not, you know, people aren't necessarily opening up the LA times or whatever their local newspaper and reading the movie reviews, like these online movie reviews are they're f- in, a, in a way they're for a specific audience, not a, a general audience. I see more of the ecstatic writing in the online magazines, you know, the, the famous ones, the salons and the boxes and those <laughs> kinds of places. Uh, it happens on blogs um, but it, it's, I think I, I, I'm seeing it more online. I'm not necessarily seeing it in the New York Times or the LA Times, which are sort of traditional. Um, but I think in, the, in these online magazines, which are the new LA Times and the new New York <laughs> Times, I don't know what it is, but there, That's interesting. there is a kind of over-excitement. I think that it's unconscious. The critic is being true to himself, but maybe... Everyone's trying to. I think there's a few things people are writers, critics are are desperate to keep the attention of their reader, so maybe they overplay. It's hard not to overplay if you like something. Yeah. I just reviewed this little horror movie called uh, Aaron's Blood. It's it's going straight to video on demand and it's going to play in one theater uh, in Hollywood, mm-hmm. which they may have paid for the theater. You know that's called a four wall. Yeah. But anyway, and, I've, and that's how I've stayed alive all these years as I review those movies. But anyway, I liked it. I thought it, it was a, just a very low-budget little horror movie. I was, thought it was really kind of a, really well done and original and 
this guy knows what he's doing. And as I wrote the review, I had to really stop myself from overpraising it, you know, because it wasn't perfect. But uh, you want to you wanna really say, hey, look at this little movie. So it, it's a very easy thing to do, I think, yeah. to, 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 to get overexcited. I think, I think your comment about critics not informing people how to watch not movies but a specific the movie. movie the specific movie is is that i think that's, that's fascinating and i love it uh so as it happens um i'm writing a i'm writing a, a paper about uh film criticism uh right now so i've been reading a lot of like james agee mm-hmm. um and he was just a really fascinating writer and and he was very precise with his words and admittedly film criticism was different then, uh, as far as tone and purpose and that sort of thing. But, um, but his reviews and I feel like the reviews of a lot of the great critics, even, even somebody like Pauline Kael, who I never really responded super well to, but, uh, she was a good writer. Um, they talk about the stuff that the movie made them think about and the stuff the movie made them feel. And I think they weren't necessarily afraid to make it a little bit personal, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to something that is, is not a bad thing, but to just layer this stuff on the film and say like, this is what the director is obviously trying to do as opposed to this is what the director made me think about. Maybe it's the purpose. Maybe it isn't, but it's what it made me think about. And it could make you think about, something similar or something different. That's the beauty of this movie as opposed to if you see this movie, it's going to blow you away. (laughs) And it's about this. And it's about this thing that's going to blow you away. And it might not be about that thing to that person. And when, when you, when somebody uses the term blow you away, like it, people just assume they're going to have this huge emotional reaction. It could be a very small emotional reaction, but frankly, any reaction is, a win, sure, I think. Sure. And so it's, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I'm not sure if I, I don't feel qualified to, to talk about just kind of the whole of film criticism at the moment and say like what they, why they might be trying to go one way or another. But I definitely, uh, understand what you're saying. And I, and I think I agree with you. Uh, I, I, I was lucky because, uh, when I started writing for the LA weekly, which I never expected to do, I had, two amazing editors, and Manola Dargis, who was the film editor at the Weekly at the time, and a woman named Hazel Dawn Dumper, who was a film critic, but also the associate editor. And I, wrote, I mostly wrote 200-word capsules, mm-hmm. then and now, although now with the internet, you can go a little longer. You can go to 230. <laughs> <laughs> That's also part of the problem. People can write long now. It used to be a word count. Yeah. It was going to be in the paper. Sorry, you've got you know, 500, 600 words, whatever it is, yeah. get it, be concise, do what you need to do and get out the door. Now on the internet, on these pages, people can go along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good I people, see. good writers, you know, writers love to write. Mm-hmm. And so you can really go to town. I don't, but what I wanted to say was that, uh, I was lucky because Dawn used to say to me, she would, she was a tough editor. She taught me how to do it. They both did. But Dawn would say, Tell me what it feels like to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. And I never forgot that. And I, to this day, I feel like I'm writing to give the reader a sense of what they might encounter if they go in to this movie. 
Give them a sense of what it feels like, how it moves, what it looks like, maybe a couple of cool things about it or something to look for. But I just want to tell them, I just want to give them a sense. I want to be a guide, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think maybe that's been lost a little bit through the years. It's not true of everybody, and I'm going to get in so much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's a... uh, not until you name names. That's what I won't do that. <laughs> we'll have that after the the end, the end music. Um, there's so much good writing happening right now. There's this clip. I don't even know what it's from. Uh, it's ostensibly from Siskel and Ebert, um, but it's not associated with any particular episode they did. But they're they're on the set, and they're kind of both talking in larger terms about what film criticism is, uh, and. One of them, I forget who it was. I think it was uh, I think it was Siskel who said that he approaches writing a review as uh, a standard reporting job. But what you're reporting on is your reaction to the film. And so, if you if you approach it that way, then you're not going to try. You're not going to embellish. You're not going to try to project more on to the the review than is there. You're merely. But you're also not going to leave any details out. If it's if you, if you were just reporting on you know a car accident or a political speech or something like that, you would give as much detail as possible and probably some interpretation as well. But if you're talking about your reaction, that's inevitable. And I remember looking at it that way and thinking like that's a really interesting that's a really interesting way to uh, to approach film criticism because it's still you 100 percent like it's still your uh, your response to the film, but it's uh, and you can. You can uh, extrapolate and you can speak a, little, a bit hyperbolically as long as that's what you're feeling. But then you also need to explain why you're feeling that way the same way that you would describe a political rally or something like that. And I found that very helpful in my writing. I, I, I agree. I, I think I always try to meet the movie on its own terms. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that is necessarily happening. Hmm. I think that movies are reviewed as if everyone should be this astonishing thing. So if I'm reviewing Aaron's Blood, which is a super low-budget indie indie movie, I'm not going to review that as if it's even King Arthur Mm -hmm. because it's not fair. My question is, this guy had this limited framework. He's created this framework. It's, It's modest, to use that word again. Is he succeeding within the frame with which with which he's has to work that didn't sound right <laughs> so so you if you're reviewing if i'm reviewing king arthur the new king mm-hmm. arthur that's a different review because yeah. there you have all this money and all this experience and you can you do you can ex, you should expect competence yeah you know and do you get it or not but the other thing i wanted to say uh, about all this is that I think that if you take a critic's work, hopefully, if you put it all together, if you read him or her for, for a long period of time, you should know who they are mm. because a good critic has a voice. And I think that people read reviews not to find out the opinion, but they read a review for a good writing and for voice. And that's the hardest thing to get on the page is voice. Absolutely. But it's through the voice that the reader subconsciously figures out or tries or interprets who the critic is and 
what their viewpoint is, not just on the movie, but on life and yeah. the world. And all you have to somehow get all that in there. <laughs> but I think that's what people pick up on yeah. and good criticism. And that's why people return to certain people for a long, long time and why they don't to others. Am I making any sense? I'm right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, oh, you shouldn't let me talk. <laughs> but I, well, let's, we're going to make, we're going to make you talk some more. Um, now you said it's been, uh, 20 years almost to the, to the day. When I watched uh, King Arthur, I figured that out for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> this was is that the revelation? Yes. Was? Okay. That right. was my profound revelation during <laughs> King Arthur. Um, I don't know what made me think of it, but, but some, for some reason during King Arthur, I realized that, uh, I wrote my first review. I've been really blessed because uh-huh. I haven't had to bounce around. You know, uh, the first professional critic job I got was writing was reviewing Warriors of Virtue, <laughs> a, a <laughs> oh, 1981 wow. uh, martial arts movie for kids, Ronnie Hugh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was the first movie I reviewed. And I've stayed pretty much at the same place. I'm very lucky, you know, that I haven't had to bounce around. But I remembered it in the middle of King Arthur that it had, I was like, it, is, has it been 20 years? <laughs> because of not long, I think a couple of months ago, I looked up Warriors of Virtue and I noticed the year. And so somehow in, in watching King Arthur, I, my brain finally assembled the fact that, oh, that was actually 20 years ago, dummy. <laughs> Didn't come with a gold watch or anything. Um, well, let's Yeah, it, it, only came with, it only comes with the realization like, oh, I saw Warriors of Virtue. Oh, God help me. Oh, I was so excited though. I remember, I don't remember the movie, but I saw the screening, was a, it was a Saturday morning screening at the Universal City Walk Theaters, which were mm. Cineplex Odeons then, wow. and it, it was full of kids, and gosh, I was so excited to be a critic going to a screening with my pad, and my name was at the door, and all of that stuff. Um, thrilling, and I still, you know, I'm still astonished when they have my name at the door <laughs> on the list. <laughs> you know, like, Chuck Wilson, or, you know, are they going to know who I am? And that's all still exciting but boy it was it is especially exciting. exciting that saturday morning uh, David, what is the what's the first review you wrote that like had your name attached and that people could see uh, the, well the first um well i didn't online or otherwise or whatever i i didn't review you reviewed for your high school newspaper yeah. i didn't review movies uh-huh. at all until uh, i mean i had before we did the thing i had a short-lived print column in the metro mix if anyone remembers that's metro right mix. yeah it, it, it was sort of a like what's what are the highlights of this week? This week's like rep screenings in LA Weekly, and I got 250 words a week oh, on true. that. And that there's <laughs> no room for that anymore. It's yeah, so sad. Uh, um, uh, but that wasn't reviewing movies. As far as like it was with Battleship Retention, the first press screening, the first time I got to go to a press screening, uh, and it was an all media screening. Our listeners probably don't necessarily know what that means, uh, but you know, it wasn't a super exclusive press press screening, right? But it was the tw- early 2011 and it was the Ivan Reitman film, no strings attached That's with right. Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman. Oh wow. <laughs> that was the first, uh, <laughs> movie I went to uh, as a critic and got to walk up and say like David Bax, battleship retention. Uh, uh, yeah, that was the first one. Yours was also kind of ignoble, right? For for BP. Yeah. Uh, I, through my, my high school newspaper in, Colorado, uh-huh. uh, I did get to go to a couple of like, I don't think they were critic screens. They were like sneak previews, right? Oh, but I got, I got invited to that. So like, yeah. so, uh, LA confidential was one of them, uh, cool. bean. Mm. And then the, uh, 
long forgotten Krippendorf's tribe starring uh, <laughs> Richard Dreyfuss. But, and Jenna uh, Elfman, right? And Jenna Elfman. Uh, but no, my first BP review was was uh, Season of the Witch. Season of the Witch, <gasps> that's right. Followed shortly by... Uh, Nomeo and Juliet. So I was like, oh, this wow. is not oh. starting off well. But you wouldn't. What, what wouldn't it be horrible if you're? So you don't know how to do anything. You, yeah. you really don't. You think you do. Oh, you yeah. know, your mom said you did, but you don't. You show up. What if the first review they sent you? To, the first movie they sent you to review was The Godfather Part Two oh, yeah, right. or That's something great, like that. It's like, oh, uh, how do you do this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now that, I want to wonder. Might not be pretty. I want to go back and think. What was the first really good movie? Mm. That I got because if if it was early 2011, definitely I went to a press screening of Tree of Life at the DGA or or, yeah, I guess it was a press screening. That was mind blowing because I loved that movie. But uh, yeah, I wonder what the first one was. I I can remember some of my early ones. I remember No Strings Attached. I remember a uh, forgotten uh, Brad Anderson horror movie called The Vanishing on Seventh Street with I think Ryan Phillippe and John Leguizamo. He's so talented. Um, I love Brad Anderson, and I thought the movie was not in that. Up, it wasn't one of his best of his, but it was good it's yeah. always something in his movies um, and then another movie that no one saw the one that David Schwimmer directed was it called Truth is that what it's called about the online yeah they yeah. were where the, the guys I can't remember who the actor is Jason Clark is the FBI agent it's uh, oh Clive Owen is the actor and his daughter I don't know um, she's at all. being stalked or harassed and online it was by was an it? older yeah he she's like gets roped into meeting you know she gets catfished I guess I don't know what the word is it was uh, the beginning but, of all that yeah it's into meeting an older man who essentially like statutory rapes her or just just plain rapes her, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the, the actress's name. She was on Justified. Um, uh, oh well, I can't remember her name. Uh, those are some of my earliest, <laughs> earliest ones. If I if I were to look back, and my you know yeah, my mom has like all those school newspapers and stuff. I think she might have sent them to me. Uh, but um, if I were to go back and read that oh. LA Confidential review, I think I would be deeply ashamed (laughs) though i will say i think i probably nailed krippendorf's trial (laughs) i think i got that one uh okay so let's go let's go back even further chuck this is what i ask everyone where are you from i was born in brandon florida which is a suburb of tampa okay and we lived there until i was about 10 9 or 10 and then we moved to atlanta and when i was 18 i didn't go to college when i was 18 uh, my sister, Pamela, was living in Los Angeles. I think she had married a country music producer or something. <laughs> and I used to talk to her every night on the phone. I would call her. And one night she said, you call me every night. Just come. <laughs> and so I, I was living with my dad. And I packed up my books. And <laughs> I shouldn't tell this. <laughs> but I'm a big Barbara Streisand guy. Uh-huh. And I had a record store cardboard cutout. Remember, you know, the life, yeah, yeah. <laughs> life size of Barbara Streisand's Superman album where she's wearing the little white shorts and she's holding the Superman short oh, over yeah. herself. You probably don't remember. This. Oh, I do know that. But I, it's very I, sexy. This was 1980. And I, lo- <laughs> I, I, I checked my boxes of books, my four boxes of very important books on the plane. And I carried Barbara <laughs> onto the oh, plane awesome. and propped her in the corner. And I always remember my sister picked me up. She and her little girl, who was six at the time, picked me up on a little MG or something that was convertible, and we had to strap Barbara on, and we drove to Redondo Beach, and that was how I came to L.A. <laughs> wow. 
Tyler gave me some side eye, but young Barbara Streisand. It's, it's just what I wasn't expecting you to say. It, that's all. Um, uh, I, uh, no, I'm a uh, big fan of of uh, of uh, uh, what's the uh, what's up, Doc? Yeah, uh, sure. That, that era, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very, very cute. Um, okay, so you came here when you were 18. I did. Uh, and I worked in bookstores. I, I had worked okay. in B. Dalton bookstores since I was 16, and I moved to uh, Redondo Beach, which is the beach in Los Angeles, outside yeah. Los Angeles. And there was a B. Dalton at the Torrance Mall. It was one of the biggest B. Daltons in the country. And my, before I came, my, I shouldn't tell this, my sister walked in there and said to the manager, my brother's coming from Atlanta. He's a genius. You should hire him. <laughs> and God bless her, the manager of that store, uh, Linda Totteroff, who's still one of my dear friends, she called me at the B. Dalton in Atlanta, where I, I was working one night. And she interviewed me over the phone. I don't know what she said or what I said, but at the end she said, well, come on out and you've got a job. And so I went to work at the B. Dalton, and then eventually I moved into the city, and I managed the Crown Books in Beverly Hills. And then I went to work at UCLA at the law bookstore, and that was when I started to write. Mm -hmm. I was always the movie guy. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I used to, I, I still have this big scrapbook. I used to cut out uh, newspaper ads of movies and I would uh -huh. paste them in this big scrapbook and write a little review next to it. And I would post a 10 best list on my best bedroom door, which no one read. Oh, that's <laughs> Talk awesome. Talk about wanting to revise things. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara always did well on those lists, but I might want to revise that now. Uh, big Prince of Tides fan, is that? No, uh, this was before. Oh, okay, I'm so right. old. Oh, I'm sorry. That's Star is Born. Okay, so there Star we go. Star Born, yeah. you know, that was a big deal at the time. Oh, that made your top not ten a, list? It's not, not, yeah, not a good movie. movie. <laughs> not Barbara's best moment, which I will never tell her. If she hears this, I'm never going to get invited to the Oh, house. she's a huge listener of <laughs> <laughs> Um So I started, so in 1991, I self-published a little... 36-page book, stapled together, uh, photocopied. This was before the internet. It was a beautiful thing. And it was called Flickers, the 80s, Notes from One Man's Movie Decade. My friend Greg took a picture of me. Well, actually, we took pictures of the, at uh, the Vista, but he took a photos of me in old theaters downtown. And it was little, very short essays about the 10 movies from the 80s that had meant the most to me. But mostly the thing was they told stories about my life. So the big piece in that was the Yentl piece. <laughs> because in the Yentl piece, I talked about why Barbara. Yeah. So I went back to my childhood, the first time I saw her, what she meant to me, you know, as a gay guy, as her voice, what all. And I tried to figure it out. And that was kind of the big piece. Mm -hmm. And <sighs> so that happened. Uh, and so I remember, I had it printed, you know, I had a cover made, I, I mailed it to people, I left it on people's doorsteps, I drove, oh. there was like a publication day. I remember the night before my publication day, which no one knew about but me, I remember that I figured out something, which is originally the book, that little little book, was mm -hmm. structured as a 10 best list, so the movies were in order. So uh -huh. Yentl was high. Uh -huh. is a great movie. But I remember lying in bed that night, I couldn't sleep, and I figured out what was wrong with it. Yentl was the main piece, but it came early. So if I did them alphabetically, 
Yentl uh, would yeah. be last. And so that's what happened. Uh, Yentl was last, and that was the main piece. But in the front of that book, um, I peaked really early. <laughs> <laughs> I opened it with a famous quote from Pauline Kael, the, the great New Yorker critic who I loved. Um, famous quote. There's nothing quite like that moment when the lights go down and all our hopes are focused on the screen. And uh, I sent her a copy at the New Yorker. Hmm. I was friends with Michael Silverblad, who's the host now of Bookworm on KCRW. And Michael knew Pauline, had known her in his youth. And he said, mail her one. You'll hear from her. And I did mail it to her. And I did hear from her. She left me a message on my machine, which I still have. Uh, I was working at the law bookstore at UCLA, and I was, it was a Friday afternoon, you know, and those were answering machines where you used to have to call and dial in your code and listen to your messages on your answering machine, which I miss. Uh, <laughs> because we, people used to leave great messages, but we don't do that anymore. And there was a message. Uh, Hi, it's Pauline Kale. You have a really nice feeling for a movie. I'm flattered to have been quoted for, by you. Bye bye. <laughs> oh, wow. And that was it. You know, I was done. I was 30 and I was done. <laughs> uh, and then she called back some months later. It was on Martin Luther King's birthday because I was home and I was talking to Michael Silverblatt uh, on the, I had, you know, uh, what do we call it? Voice uh, call, call waiting. Call waiting. Call waiting. Yeah, yeah. Well, in those in, since in the times after Pauline left that initial message, sometimes when I would be talking to Michael, and I'd get a call, Michael would joke. He'd say, "Oh, you better get that. It's probably Pauline." <laughs> and on that particular day, it was. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes life is like a movie uh-huh. if you're paying attention. That's the one of the reasons why we live in Los Angeles. Uh, and she she called to say that she was putting together her collection, Movie Love, which would be her last formal collection. And she wanted to quote from the Yentl piece. She wanted to quote about Barbara Streisand, about my seeing Barbara Streisand when I was six. And did I want to be Chuck or Charles? (laughs) 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 Uh, So that was a great moment. And then Pauline and I became friends, for phone friends for for 10 years. And I kept, and we can talk about that, but I, I kept writing, so I would see a movie, the Long Day Closes, Terrence Davies, mm-hmm. great, The Long Day Closes. And I would just have an intense emotional response to it. So I would go home and write a little two or three page essay. So The Long Day Closes wasn't really about the movie. It was about how my mother was afraid. The light, the way the light plays in The Long Day Closes made me think of how my mother was afraid of lightning. And when there were storms in Georgia, those sudden violent storms, we would sit on this, it was a split level, and we would sit on the interior landing, hidden by the wall, and wait for the storm to pass. And my mother would jump whenever there was lightning. And so I wrote an essay about that. And those were called flickers. And they would happen when they happened, three times a year, four times a year. It was just purely spontaneous. And I would mail them to whoever I met, anyone I met. So I met Manola Dargis, who had come from... I met Sheila Benson, who was the LA, film, LA Times chief film critic. She, we became great friends, and I would go to screenings with her. And, and we met Manola Dargis, who had just come to Los Angeles uh, from the Village Voice to run the LA Weekly. And so I started sending her flickers, mailing them to her. And after a time, she called and said, I think you should be writing for us. And that was how it started. Wow. Hmm. So I was very lucky. 
So there's a kid. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm that think, was such a long story. No, that's, no, no, that's, that's, that's like one of the best stories I've ever heard. Yeah, that was um, and now I feel bad for, for uh, saying I'm not a big fan of your best friend in the world, Pauline Kale. Um, so, uh, but it is interesting. Ask me about voice and Pauline, but go ahead. <laughs> there's a, um, so the movie Ratatouille, I think has maybe my favorite depiction of a critic Hmm. And it's not merely because of what he does or what he says, but it's the moment when he takes a bite of the ratatouille and he's right back to when he was a kid and is, and it tastes like the stuff his mom made him. And I was like, that's something that you can't really intellectualize. It's something you have to tap into, but it, you can't really intellectualize. And it's like, that's, that, that's probably why people love movies or yeah, love absolutely. art or in his case, film, uh, in his case, food. Um, there's just it it hits you you where you are right now or where you were or where you want to be whatever it is and there are these if you'll pardon me there are these flickers mm-hmm. and it's just like oh my gosh and those are those tend to be the movies that are the ones that are our absolute favorites because in that moment you just feel like oh this person gets it yeah they didn't know my parents I or re- anything I like recognize that. that exactly and it's not always the best movie ever made boy it sure isn't but that's the thing that always interested me and in, in a way it still is I, I never meant to be a movie critic I meant to be a writer uh, first <laughs> and, and, and it was sort of surprising to me when Manolo asked me to because I never thought of those essays as reviews people would say it but to me they weren't reviews they were essays but, uh, but I, st- t- still the thing that interests me most is is how do we respond? Because I say we don't watch a movie. Maybe the reason why movies reviews are frustrating right now is because everyone's watching them with their head. Mm-hmm. But I think we watch movies with our heads, but we also watch them with our gut. Mm. And that's in that uh, the subconscious and connections are being made and memories are being flashed. Not every time, hardly ever. But when that happens, it's a really powerful thing. And that interests me the most, you know. And, and uh, I wish that people still talked about movies in that way. Yeah. There was a time when they did, even recent time. And uh, that reminds me of- everyone's in such a rush now, we don't get to spend the time on the, that stuff like we used to, I think. Um, back when we were celebrating our 500 episodes, we had an episode with um, with Amy, Amy Nicholson uh, from uh, formerly of LA Weekly sure. and, uh, and Todd Vanderwerf, and, and th- we were talking about the idea of what's easier to write a review of a movie you loved or review of a movie you hated. And my, my response was it's easier to write a review of a movie I hated, but it's more fun to write a review of a movie I loved. If that makes, if that makes sense. And it's because of that, that gut thing is it's more, it's harder. Like Tyler said, harder to intellectualize that kind of response, but that's the challenge. I think that's, what's fun is trying to get it across. And that's why sometimes there are movies that I didn't review that I loved that a part of me is like, I'm glad that I wasn't tasked with reviewing that because I don't like personal shopper. Is, I think yeah. is it one of the best movies I've seen in the last 10 years. And I don't know how I would have written a review of that movie. Yeah. There's uh, and it's moments like that, that I'm just like, Oh, thank God we don't have a word limit on the, uh, on the website because <laughs> those, those are the reviews where it's like, I'm just going to keep writing until I feel like I got it. Uh, and often it's just like, Oh, I ra- I wound up writing 1200 words on this thing. Oops. Yeah. Oh, well I, I guess it's good that it's uh, that it's my, uh, my website. Um, speaking of topics that have come up on the podcast recently, because Chuck, I want to ask you about some of your favorite movies. I know, mm. obviously, Yentl, but um, <laughs> but I want to go back to something you said earlier because it, uh, it made me think of something. You, you talked about writing that a, a lot of the reviews you're writing uh, are these these like things people have four walled a theater. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen one of those 
where you know, okay, this person put their own, it's a passion project. Oh, they yeah. put their own money into it. They put the money into for on the theater and it's just fucking terrible. Oh, sure. And how, it's do the, you feel like, how do you go about reviewing that? It's in that very case? hard, but you have to tell the truth. Um, you have to tell the truth. Uh, for walling is, you know, a filmmaker rents the theater and in Los Angeles, it, it happens in the major cities. It's happening a little less now because movies are going online so fast. Right. Mm-hmm. It still happens. But in Los Angeles, there's the art house chain Limley and people four wall at yeah. Limley's like crazy. That's one of the uh, things, sorry to interrupt, but the, um, the, I love the Sundance Sunset Theater now, mm-hmm. but I miss the Sunset Five because that was one of the centers in Los Angeles for, for there were always something going on always like that. It's a wonderful like that, theater. Yeah. So Sorry, yeah, I, I, I reviewed, I've forgotten them. I, I, I pray that I have forgotten them. Uh-huh. Uh, but you have to tell the truth, you know, and you have, sometimes that means you have to be brutal. Uh, it's hard. You try to find... Yeah. It depends on the movie. You know, some movies are just so offensively bad and also offensive that you really don't have trouble saying, <laughs> don't do another one of these. Mm-hmm. You know, or... Uh, but I think you always have to tell the truth. You know, I think if it's if it's one of those movies where it's a, it's a homegrown thing, um, some movies inspire you to be gentler than others. Uh, but you still have to tell the truth. You have to say... If it's good or bad, it's mostly bad. But there's just one thin thing, you know. Yeah. Karen Black's in it. Karen Black did a lot. <laughs> Karen, Karen, did, yeah. Karen Black was an extraordinarily generous woman, and she did a lot of first time movies like mm-hmm. that. She was one of those people who would always say yes. Uh, but uh, and bless her for that. But uh, anyway, you just have to tell the truth. That's all. Because if you don't. Why would anybody trust you? And I don't know if anybody reads me or not. I've never had any sense of being read. No sense at all. When I, either in print or online. I have no idea, really. I, <laughs> I really don't know. But, I mean, but you're still doing flickers. Well, I haven't done as many flickers. But it's still going to be your website. Or your well, flickers, yeah, flickers is my website, flickers.typepad.com. I need to come <laughs> up with a better one. Uh, but yeah, and that's a repository, basically, of everything that I can think of that I've ever written. The old flickers are on there. Um, the little book isn't on there. I should put it on there. Uh, and whenever I write a new review, I put it on there. I, I, but I've lo- I have lost touch. I mean, this is, a, this is sort of an, an issue for me right now here in the, in, in the mid, middle range, is trying to figure out how to get back to the guy who had those spontaneous reactions and sat down and wrote because he had to. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost that, and I'm trying to find my way back to it. And, and it may be that I'll have to just give up writing movie reviews mm. to see what else I could write, because I don't seem to be able to do... I know people, I know critics who review a ton of movies and write books and write articles and do all these many things. And I admire that so much. I don't seem to be that guy. (laughs) It's it's a thing. It's an odd dot for me to connect, but it's a thing that happens a lot with, uh, I'm sorry to bring this up again and make everyone uncomfortable, I guess. Uh, I I think I've made it clear that I'm the only one who's uncomfortable about it for some reason. Well, maybe, I don't know, but (laughs) something that uh, happens with pastors a lot. It feels like Mm. there, there are certain pastors that uh, you just kind of become aware of uh, throughout uh, the country and you are, you're aware of them because they crank out books. And I was like, you've got to be dropping the ball somewhere. (laughs) You have a church to run, man. And just like, and that's, you have to come up with a new sermon every week. 
where are you finding time to write these books? One of these is probably not as good as it should be, mm. either the sermons or the books. And but then I just realized, like, oh, I guess people are just better at time management than I am. <laughs> well, that's a big part of it. Yeah. It's also, you know, it depends on who you are. See, I never made a living as a movie critic. It was always, I never, I was lucky um, because I always found other things to do. I worked in the bookstore for a long time. I should have stayed at that job, by the way, because <laughs> I'd be nearing retirement and I wouldn't that UC retirement be nice. Uh, oh, I was going to, you meant, yeah, I thought you meant that was Dalton, UC, though, Yeah, I got so, bad news no, for you. I was working at UCLA, <laughs> yeah, yeah. at the Lost Bookstore yeah, UCLA. Yeah. I should have stayed there. Uh, anyway, but I left because I was writing reviews and I yeah. thought it was going to become something. And, and I had, I, you know, you don't do regret. And I've had extraordinary experiences and still do and got to do, you know, I don't do, as, one of the things I miss these days is I, I don't get to do interviews, but there was a time when I was doing profiles and mm-hmm. that was always terrifying, but it was so much fun, you know, it yeah. was so rewarding in the end. You know, uh, Samuel Jackson, I remember was wonderful. And, uh, but anyway, well, look, if you uh, Viola Davis, even though my phone went off twice, <laughs> I forgot to turn it off, and then it went off. I was so mortified, and then somehow I still didn't turn it off, and it went off again. <laughs> no one ever calls me, but that particular moment. <laughs> well, Did you gonna, say, oh, uh, hold on, it's Pauline Kael. Uh, <laughs> that's the that only way it's acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, if you ever, ever want to get away from like the, like getting paid, hmm. You just come on over to Battleship Pretension. We'll be happy to host your reviews, and and it'll be a passion project, and that's all. Yes. Um, Wonderful. Well, time has flown by, um, but I do want to ask you about some of your favorite movies. Just uh, I want to start with... the top ten of ni- of the eighties. Do you have well, a memory? You know, I should have brought. The, I knew you were going to ask me I'm that. I'm sorry. No, and I knew we can move like, on if you want. Done. No, I don't remember them all. Okay. But 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 my favorite movie is in there. Uh, <laughs> dressed to Brian De Palma's Dressed to Kill hmm. makes me very happy. <laughs> you know, to me, it's like favorite movies and best list are two different things. Sure. And I'm not too interested in best list. Citizen Kane might be the best movie ever made, but I don't particularly want to watch it all the time. Mm-hmm. I will always watch Trust to Kill in the middle of the night. <laughs> it just, you know, it speaks to me, you know, uh, and Shoot the Moon was on that list with, uh, uh, with Diane Keaton and Albert Finney. Uh, Alan Parker directed, written by Bo Goldwyn. Mm. It was dumped by the studio. It came out in February. Sometimes I think it's the last great American movie about a, a crumbling marriage. Stunning script. So incredible script. Um, Has Albert Finney ever been in a movie where a marriage is going great? <laughs> I, feel like. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think he's just tough on a marriage. But to me, Diane Keaton's greatest performance. Hmm. And his, you know. Uh, Pauline said in her hmm. review, Diane Keaton and Albert Finney give performances that in the theater would become legend. Hmm. And I think that's true. Uh, so, uh, Koyana Scotsi uh-huh. at the mm-hmm. time, you know, was so great. Yentl, of course, was the last one. Uh, the step, the, the horror movie, The Stepfather. Oh. To me, that was Reagan's America. Plus, it was a fantastic thriller. Is that the one with Terry O'Quinn? Yeah. yeah. First, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who directed that? Uh, a really good, you know, uh, Joseph. He he. Oh gosh, Joseph Joseph Rubin. Uh, yeah. Who did? Uh, he did something else. He did. Um, another a little. I love horror movies. That's uh, fine. He did the movie with uh, Macaulay Culkin, The Good Son. The Good Son. Oh, I haven't thought that of that movie. Amazing in a long time. tracking sh- uh, camera shot at the end where they're hanging off the side yeah. of the cliff, and the camera kind of swoops around. He's a very elegant director. You know, he's what 
he's a journeyman. He's just a mm-hmm. craftsman, never going to be famous. Yeah. Um, but, and he's doing something now, but I forget what. But, no. uh, but you know, Dress oh, to he, Kill, Oh, he just had it. that movie come out, the, the Ottoman Lieutenant, which is... Oh, yeah, I didn't see that. I didn't see it, but it has the... Uh, uh, the the what the distinction of being one of two movies that came out within a couple of months <laughs> that were about love triangles during the Armenian How does genocide. That How does that <laughs> uh, yeah. But well, one know, studio hears the other one's doing. It's like we got to hurry up and get our Armenian genocide movie out. I love the earrings of Madame De. That's yeah. one of my favorite movies. I love Miracle in Milan, which I haven't seen since I saw it the first time. Uh, uh, you know, like in 1982, uh, they used to have uh, in LA. We had Film X, the mm-hmm. film festival, and they had an all-night fantasy and science fiction festival. And you brought your pillow and your blanket, uh-huh. and that was when I saw um, what is it, the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor Dr. T. Dr. T. Dr. T. Oh. I saw that, and I saw Miracle in Milan in the middle of the night. And uh, I also saw transformative. Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. At a mid, it was a midnight screening the best way to at see the, the Music Box in Chicago. Um, which I guess now we would say on thirty five millimeter, but at the time, twelve years ago, that was that you was just took just that for granted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, and then what are what are some of your what are the, some of the great movies you've seen recently? I know movies are overpraised now. So <laughs> what are some of the pretty good movies you've yeah. seen recently? Um, Tolerable, yeah. I saw it comes by night the other night. Oh yeah, is it good? It's good. It's overpraised. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a horror movie as I think of it. You know, I think they're making a mistake with the ads, with the title and the ad campaign, because I, I think people are going to be expecting a kind of scare movie that they're not going to get. It's beautifully made. It's very tense, but uh, maybe, That's, maybe not no. this the scary movie that it's being pushed as. That's pretty common these days with uh, horror movies. I feel like. You know, something like The Babadook, which is my favorite movie of that mm-hmm. year. And it certainly is a horror movie. There's no question sure. about it. But, you know, it's they, they push it. And look, if William Friedkin says it's the scariest movie you'd ever seen, then you put that in the ad, obviously. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, so many people like you in user comments and stuff said this wasn't scary at all. Or no. it's it's a different kind of scary. It's a dread type of scary. There's it's a not kind a, of art, yeah. art house horror going yeah. on now, which is great. Yeah. But it's not the same kind. Like I love, I'm sorry, this is I, boy, people are going to have just dismiss me. But I love, if you ask me what my favorite horror movie of recent times was, it's uh, 30 Days of Night, the vampire oh, movie wow. with Josh I didn't Hartman, see that. David Slade directed. Fantastic. Danny Houston's in that, right? Oh my God, he's <laughs> terrifying. Okay, he is terrifying, and there's incre- and and the director David Slade is that right? I think he's that's just right. he's just done the first three episodes of American Gods. Yeah, because he was also heavily involved in the Hannibal series the that Hannibal was also series. produced by yeah. Brian, Fuller. Brian Fuller. But uh, you know, I remember seeing it's a lot of times it's about how you see a movie. Mm-hmm. That's what we remember too. We remember you remember what theater you saw Five Thousand Fingers. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing. I saw 30 Days of Night by myself at Grauman's Chinese when it was still the Grauman's Chinese before they Mm -hmm. turned it into, they ruined it and turned it into an IMAX. And there was hardly (laughs) anyone there. And it was this huge place. And it scared me to death. And the screen was so enormous. Mm -hmm. And there's this amazing sequence. I'm sorry. It's just one of the great sequences uh, worthy of De Palma where the vampires are attacking the town and you know it's night it's a it's it's permanently night and and uh and the camera tracks down main over main street and white snow 
and vampires and victims and blood, and it's just amazing. <laughs> I should. <laughs> so you should watch. It. I know. Yeah, you I never. Should, did I watch it every Halloween. I'd, I'd it's heard my Halloween that, movie. I'd heard that one was actually pretty underrated. That it deserved yeah, a second you know, look, it, or even a first. It, People weren't going to take it seriously because it was Josh Hartnett, and by then, yeah. yeah, and he's fine in it. You know, he's another guy. Neb, who's, you know, he was good in um, the Showtime series that John uh, uh, Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful. He was pretty good in that, and I think he's he's not a great actor, but he's kind of come through the. Uh, he's come out the other side. He doesn't have to be pretty anymore. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to lead the movie. He went away. He came back, and yeah. now. He can just be himself. He had a. Uh, he has a good on-screen presence. He yeah. doesn't. He's not a great actor, but he's not necessarily a cardboard cutout either. No, like, he's not. There's something it's, it about depends. him. On, yeah. I think you have to. You know, there are some actors. I think actually, what ruined him was that was the De Palma movie. Um, oh, the Black Dahlia. The Black Dahlia, because that was supposed to be such a big movie, and that mm-hmm. was his last kind of his last big studio shot in that movie was a disaster and uh, yeah. for everybody i remember there was uh, everyone because there are so many billboards in los angeles mm. every once in a while a billboard will just like not change for a long time i remember on wilshire there was a black dahlia billboard for like a year and a half <laughs> after the movie came out and i was like why don't you just let that wound close <laughs> or james elroy still driving down the street <laughs> that was one of those perverse diplomas where he almost seemed to purposefully scuttle the movie it's like i am not going to tell this story huh. in any kind of way that I never satisfies i never did and there's it. no de palma moment in it okay um see i i'm uh to get back to horror i i worry that i'm one of those art house horror guys no, that's good because <laughs> that's i fine. think the ones I, uh, I i've said i think the scariest movie in recent years and one of the scariest movies i've ever seen is a documentary called The Nightmare that came out about two years ago about sleep paralysis. Um, oh, that was on Netflix. I can't, I can't see that. I don't think I didn't see it. Great. I don't want to see it. it it's, yeah. great. it's terrifying. Watch, but yeah, I'm that. also a big fan of the, I guess the more, the slower I like the Babadook. I, remember, I guess it's, this movie is 10 years old now, but The Orphanage, I think, was oh, an incredibly great. terrifying movie. Yeah, it was. Because uh, I, I think I tend to respond more to slow burn, slow build mm-hmm. dread than, than anything more visceral. What did you, th- there, there's a trend in horror and like thriller movies of the last few years of, of evoking the eighties with stuff like the guest and, um, it follows and that sort of thing. Do you, if you would consider the guest a horror movie, I said thriller. Okay, I'm, I'm thriller. fine with thriller, although it does turn action based, uh, yeah, for I would a say while it's, there. It, at the it's end. a, it's a horror informed action thriller. Sure. Um, do you, is that something that, uh, what is, as a horror fan, what is, what is your response to that? Well, I reviewed It Follows. Okay. <laughs> and I was the one who said it's not scary. Hmm. And it's, it's interesting. It had a, I had a, yeah. has a, to me, it has a great scare when she's in the bedroom and the thing comes through the door. It's, That's, that, yes. It's a jump scare. It's fantastic. Um, I think maybe I was a little off. You know, uh, I didn't quite get it, hmm. but I, st- I mean, every movie, I don't want to, you know, you can't do vampires every week and you can't do Halloween. God, we had a whole generation of, of Halloween retreats. I remember the day I saw Halloween too, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so it's all cyclical and you want, you want invention. And yeah. so I think it's all good stuff. Okay. I mean, some of these people, you know, I think, oh, they sh- they should go remake the shining or, you know, 
or who's, somebody was gonna is gonna be. I'm looking for the guy to remake The Shining. You know, at this year's Halloween Horror Nights, they're gonna have a Shining maze. I know, and that is probably enough to bring me out. Not that I'm a huge <laughs> fan of The Shining, but I'm so curious. Oh, I am. Like, how would a Stanley Kubrick film translate into one of those mazes? I'm I'm sure it'll be amazing. Like, you're I'm sure it'll be that you're just walking through the halls of yeah. a hotel. Like, that sounds great. What if you get there and it turns out it's based on the miniseries with Stephen Weber? <laughs> I'll still like it. I like that miniseries. It's not a bad miniseries, but uh, it'll yeah. be more just about the travails of alcoholism at that point. Yeah, that, that's one of my favorite sort of Hollywood. The, the fact that Stephen King hates Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is endlessly fascinating. I to was me. vastly disappointed when it came out. I mean, because I had loved that book. I was a big Stephen King guy. I still am. But boy, I mean, that was that was. Star Wars for me, and uh, it wasn't the book, and I was just so disappointed. It took me a long time to kind of get over that. And you know, I mean, even at the time, I knew how great the tracking shots were and everything, but uh, it it didn't thrill me. And even now, I I also it's only something I appreciate. I get why people are scared by it. I find don't find it scary at all. I find it very scary. Really, but um. I would say as I've gotten older for some reason, I maybe have to look into why that is. I found it. I didn't find it scary when I was younger. And also I came to it having read the book first because my parents were very strict on R rated movies for me, uh, when I was a kid. Um, but when it came to reading, like they were like, <laughs> well, readings are smart kids. You can read. So I read like all sorts of horror, like Stephen King and like Dean Koontz, which is like even trashier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of the time, like I read some really disturbing horror stuff. No one, no one cared. So yeah, I, I also, I think I have come to love the shining and be terrified by it, but it's been I a have, lifelong process. I have a Dean Koontz story. Yeah. <laughs> Want to hear it real quick? Yeah, sure. sure. I was working at the B Dalton in Torrance and I was a, uh, I love Dean Koontz. Anyway, it was like 1030 in the morning. I'm at the register. I'm ringing away. And you don't even look up. You know, you just ring. Yeah, we used to say, I'm ringing as fast as I can. <laughs> as a play on the movie, I'm dancing as fast as I can. But anyway, uh, so someone sets on the counter like five or six Dean Koontz paper, paperbacks. And in that time, you know, in the early 80s, he was the king of the paperback. Whispers was had been, he had had his breakthrough after years of not selling anything but he was the king of the paperback but they set a stack of paperbacks so i'm ringing them up and i I say i don't look up i say oh my god i love this guy he's one of my favorite writers these you're gonna love this oh i just babble (laughs) and the guy says oh well my friend dean Koontz here will be thrilled to say that hear that (laughs) and i look up and there he is dean Koontz, who lives in orange orange uh, county that summer, not long after that, I left Los Angeles and went back to Atlanta because I thought I needed to go back. I'm, I can't be in L.A. <laughs> and I swear this is true. I decided, as so I spent the summer in Atlanta, dead end, couldn't wait to get back to Los Angeles. And the day I decided, I swear this is true, the day I decided to tell my father and my brother and my mother that I was going to go back to L.A., I came to my father's house and there was a package from Dean Koontz. <laughs> and he sent me a... A, a hardback, a limited edition, and a letter that said that morning when he had come into the bookstore, he was depressed. Things hadn't been going well with his publisher. He felt like nothing was happening. And, he was, and my response cheered him up so much so that he went to the trouble of finding Linda, the store manager, and getting my address in Atlanta and doing that amazing thing. What a class act. Such a nice, yeah. such a nice man. Yeah. I can't. 
that shit can't happen in Georgia, you know, <laughs> no, uh, meeting people and becoming best friends with Pauline Kael and well, Dean Atlanta, Atlanta is now the Hollywood of the South, right? That's true. That uh, is true. I yeah, yeah. Studios. I should go, yeah. Now I should go back. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, this has been a blast and time has flown by. We mm. definitely have to have you back to talk about, uh, all sorts of, uh, other things. Horror I would and... suggest a De Palma profile wouldn't be su- uh, super bad. That'd be, that'd, that'd be, be great. That would be great. All right. So we'll, we'll definitely, uh, plan on that. Uh, as I said before, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. That's where all of the uh, reviews and all the stuff I mentioned before are. You can email, uh, us at David at battleshippretension.com, especially if you have uh, questions for ask BP, our video mailbag, mailbag segment. Sorry. I can't talk today. Uh, uh, you can email Tyler at Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension and follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. Uh, real quick, what's going on in More Than One Lesson, your other podcast? We uh, did an episode about the end of the tour. Uh, it, was, like it was part of an impromptu series uh, in which we talked about movies that nobody cares about <laughs> and didn't see. We did Lost City of Z, Brooklyn. People did see Brooklyn, but Brooklyn. Pe- it was my favorite movie that yeah, year. Me too. Um, but uh, but people aren't clamoring to hear about it two yeah. years later. And then uh, the end of the tour. But... Uh, but we'll bre- but next week we're talking about fences, so we'll we'll break that a little bit. Okay, um, and uh, Chuck, where can people find you on the internet? <laughs> well, Twitter is Chuck Wilson LA, so that's easy. Damn right. Uh, the website is flickers.typepad.com, and look for me. I'm not on there as much as I used to be, but LA Weekly and Village Voice. I pop up here and there. Churchill's oh. coming up, so look for that. <laughs> ah, Tyler saw that. I saw uh, it. Uh, you I guys could talk about it off mic. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 